glad you're here to join us at Waterstone. Throughout 2020, we have been reading through the Bible, and it has culminated to this moment where we open up the New Testament and see how God enters history in a personal way. It makes it unmistakably clear that He is with us, He is relentlessly on our side, and doing everything possible to rescue us. It's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we learn how to live and be people who love sacrificially, seek justice, and extend God's mercy. We're excited to dive into this series together and would enjoy it even more if you were able to attend one of our services in person. We invite you to go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Jan and I want to welcome you to our home and uh, we want to wish you a happy new year and uh, we're glad we can share with you today. Um, I, I know that this has been a challenging holiday for many of us and uh, probably not being able to do certain things we would have liked to do, empty chairs around the table, not being able to gather with uh, friends and family as we usually do. So in that way, it's been a hard year. And with that in mind, I, I wanted to uh, start with a prayer for especially those who are feeling um, a sort of a homesickness or um, a, a bit of discouragement about um, the holidays and uh, not being what you would like them to be. This is from uh, Every Moment Holy. So let's pray together as we begin. Let me steward well, Lord Christ, this gift of homesickness, this grieving for a childhood gone, this ache for distant family, lost fellowship, past laughter, shared lives, and the sense that I was somewhere I belonged. It is a good, good thing to have a home. But now that I have gone from it, let me steward well, O God, this homesick gift. As I know my wish for what has been is not some solitary ache, but is woven with a deeper longing for what one day will be. This yearning to return to what I knew is, even more than that, a yearning for a place my eyes have yet to see. So let me steward this sacred yearning well. Homesickness is indeed a holy thing, like the slow burning of an immortal beacon set ablaze to bid us onward. The shape of that ache for another time, and the place is the imprint of eternity within our souls. So let those sorrows do their work in me, O God. Let them stir such yearnings as would fix my journey forward toward that place for which I've always pined. O oh, my soul, have there not always been signs? O oh, my soul, were we not born with hearts on fire? Before we were old enough even to know why songs and waves and starlight so stirred us, had we not already tiptoed to the edge of that vast sadness, bright and good, and felt ourselves somehow stricken with a sickness unto life? Hardly had we ventured from our yard when we felt ourselves so strangely far from something and somewhere that we despaired of ever reaching, that we turned to hide the welling of our eyes. We knew it even then as the opening of a wound this world cannot repair. The first birthing of that weight every soul must wake up to alone because it is the burden of that wild and lonely space that only God in his eternity can fill. As we wait, this sacred homesick sorrow works in us 
to cultivate a faith that knows one day he will. That is the holy work of homesickness, to teach our hearts how lonely they have always been for God. So let these sighs and tears, Lord Christ, prepare me for that better gladness that will be mine. Let all your children learn to grieve well in this life, knowing we are not just being homesick, we are letting sorrow carve the spaces in our souls that joy will one day fill. O Holy Spirit, bless our grief and seal our hearts until that day. Amen. On the day before the terrorist attacks, September 10th, 2001, the attacks on New York City and Washington, D.C., a fifth grader in an elementary school in a Dallas suburb went to his teacher that afternoon and said, tomorrow, World War III is going to begin. It's going to begin in the United States, and the United States will lose. Well, as you can imagine, the teacher was quite shocked by what the boy said and immediately went to the principal, a woman named Rhonda Lusich. And Rhonda, as soon as she heard this, actually called the FBI and filed a report. The boy proceeded to miss the next two days of school. Rhonda never heard back from the FBI about the report, but word got out and she was interviewed by the Houston Chronicle. And that interview ended with Rhonda Lusage saying these words, I sincerely want to believe it was coincidental. So do I. I tend to be very skeptical about these sorts of things. I mean, consider the source. But you and I both know that these kinds of events, they're, they're actually very curious and they stoke a lot of interest in the, around the end of the world about cataclysmic events. It sells books and podcasts and uh, it's always going on every time there's a new event. In fact, recently, last week, I heard of a pastor who was encouraging his congregation not to receive the coronavirus because he believes that receiving it is conditioning us to receive the mark of the beast in Revelation 13. That's absolutely crazy, absolutely a, a misuse of Revelation 13 and apocalyptic literature. It's a pastor though. Consider the source. Do you know that in the New Testament, there are over 300 verses that talk about the end of the world? specifically the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's one verse in every 30 verses in the New Testament. It's a subject that should be steady in our thoughts and frequent in our reading. And so I thought the best way that we could end the year and end our Love This Book series would be to talk about the last moment of the world, the second coming of Jesus Christ, the end of this age. I want to use a text, one of those uh, 300 verse, six of those 300 verses from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Before I read it for us, let me just set up the background of 1 Thessalonians, and uh, then we'll read the text. Paul is writing to this church in ancient Greece. As most of the early church did, many in this church believed that Jesus would come back before they died, before the end of their lifetime. And so what happened was people started to die within the church and Jesus had not yet returned. And so there's great concern about what happens to those who die before Jesus comes back. So it's within that background in mind 
that we read and hear these verses from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We begin at verse uh, 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of uh, humanity who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. The word of the Lord. So what Paul does, knowing the concerns uh, that are in the first th this church in Thessalonica, he writes to describe what will happen to those who die and the Lord comes, and then to those who are living when the Lord comes. And so we read in verse uh, 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So the first thing to point out that, that Paul does is that no matter what happens with the second coming of Jesus, it's anchored by a previous historical event. In other words, the future is anchored to the past. And what's that event? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. The resurrection is so important because it says that Jesus is alive. And if he's alive, then he made promises that he would return again. So everything is anchored to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Christ is like green grass throwing, growing up through even concrete. It cannot be stopped. It's the truth that anchors Christianity. So based on the resurrection, consider the source. Paul goes on to say that those who have fallen asleep, Jesus will bring back with him when he comes. So what we, I think what's important to point out is even the words that Paul uses to describe why it is that those who have died in Christ will accompany him when he returns. It, he says, Jesus died and will bring with those who, him, those who have fallen asleep. Those are two different words. It says Jesus died. That word means to be separated from someone or something. And that is the essence of what death is. Death is the God-forsaken experience of being condemned. And anyone who gives the, and believes in Jesus Christ will not experience death. In other words, they won't be separated from God. Be, why? Because Jesus experienced that. He took our sins on himself on the cross. He took our condemnation on himself on the cross. He experienced hell, separation from the Father on the cross so that we who trust in him won't die. Rather of us or and anyone who believes in Jesus, it will be said, they have fallen asleep. That's a different word for death. Actually, that's a word that from which we get the word cemetery. 
as a, as a dormitory for those who are sleeping. So the idea is that because Jesus died for our sins in our place, our condemnation was put on him and he experienced death, separation from God, so that we will not have to experience that. It's as one commentator, or a preacher, Alexander McLaren, a Scottish preacher in the 19th century, he put it this way, his death, Jesus' death, makes our deaths sleep and his resurrection makes our sleep calmly certain of awakening. So everything is anchored on the resurrection. Consider the source. Because Jesus experienced our separation from God, we, when we die, only experience our bodies falling asleep. Now, not to put too fine a point on that, but I, I, it's important to point out, it's not that our souls sleep, it's our bodies sleep. So that when we die before Jesus comes back, we are actually, our souls, our inner being, are in God's presence. That's why Paul says in another one of his letters, to be absent from the Lord is to be present. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Where did he get that from? Well, I think he got it from Jesus who assured the thief on the cross who believed in him when he said, today you will be with me in paradise. So in this moment and in this time, when a believer dies, their soul, their inner being goes immediately to the presence of God. Their body goes into the ground, becomes ashes, and there it awaits the second coming of Jesus. But when Jesus comes, this text reminds us that the dead in Christ will rise. Their soul, their body will be reunited and they will actually meet Christ in the air. In fact, it says in the text in verse 16 that they will rise first, even before the living. So Paul's assuring the, the, those who are worried in this church that not only will they be reunited with their body, but they will actually not miss the party. They will be first, a matinee. They will get a, a first showing of the glory of Jesus when they are resurrected. So I just want to pause here and just say to all of you who are listening, that when it comes even to our death and what happens after our death, we have to consider the source. I mean, there are those in our culture, a growing number in our culture, who believe that uh, we are placed here by random forces that never had us in mind. Um, we're going nowhere when we die. It's the end. It's over. Worm food. We are done. And uh, in that sense, there's nothing to hope for beyond the grave. Uh, Sarah Murray, who, who I, I read her book a few years ago and never quite got over it, she talks about that there's nothing after death, so much of what we have to do in this life is to begin to say goodbye to things. She says that there'll be no more new discoveries, no more exotic, enchanted experiences. Nothing will make my heart race, my heart will have stopped. While alive, I miss these moments on behalf of my dead self. Now that's a very interesting perspective and that perspective is that hope is just a long goodbye to the only life that we'll have. If you will, hope is acquiescence to nothing in the future. The Christian hope is much different. Based on the resurrection, we have a hope of life beyond the grave. This is the kind of hope we have. A New Testament scholar by the name of Gary Habermas described the journey several years ago of losing his wife to cancer. He wrote in Decision Magazine, and he described it this way, my wife Debbie had the flu. 
When it didn't go away as quickly as it should have, we went to the hospital for tests. The first sentence I remember that the doctor uttered to Debbie was, you've got some serious problems here. My heart sank into my stomach. I had to sit down. Little did I know that my belief in Jesus' resurrection was about to be severely tested by the sting of pain and grief. Debbie was diagnosed with stomach cancer. Four months later, at the age of 43, she passed away just after we celebrated our 23rd wedding anniversary. I had lost my best friend. During Debbie's suffering, I regularly took refuge in the truth of Jesus' resurrection. It had been my major research area for 25 years, and I appreciated a student who asked, what would you do if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead? I knew that the resurrection had a historical, theoretical side, but I wasn't fully aware of its practical power. How did all this help me while Debbie was dying? I imagine what God might say to me in response to my questions about Debbie. He would ask me, Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? Of course you did, Lord, I would respond. But why is Debbie dying? Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? The question would come again. Yes, Lord, but Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? I imagine God repeating the same question until I got his point. There was an answer to Debbie's suffering, even if I didn't know it. If Jesus has been raised, then I can trust that Debbie will be raised someday too. It was sufficient to know that because of Jesus' resurrection and because Debbie and I belong to him, then we will be together with him for all eternity. We have to make up our mind, even during Christmas, what we believe about Easter and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul first wants those to know who have loved ones who have died, what will happen to them when Jesus comes, their body will be raised out of its grave, just like his was, reunited with their soul, and they will go and meet Jesus in the air. But he also wants us to know what will happen to the living who happen to be alive when he returns. Verses 16 and 17, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. There's two things I want to point out about what happens with the living who are alive when Jesus comes. First, it will be an unmistakable cataclysmic event unmistakable. The whole thing is soaked in royalty. Though even the word to meet the Lord in the air, that comes from uh, a town having a, an important dignitary come to visit them. And the way it would work in the ancient world is people from the town would get word that the important king was coming and they would run out of town and meet him along the highways and have a victory procession. And then as he walked into the city, they would follow behind in procession. It was victory. It was royalty. It was power and strength and dignity. That's what will happen. Jesus will come and the dead will rise first. Then those who are living will be caught up and we will follow him back to the new earth that uh, he will be bringing with him when he returns. There's this idea of 
the loud command and the voice of the archangel. No one is quite sure who's giving that loud shout, whether it's the archangel or whether it's God or even Jesus himself. There's a lot of scholarly journals you could read about that. I, I tend to believe it's the angel that's shouting just as the angels announced his birth. The archangel, Michael or Gabriel, the highest angels, the ones who've done battle with Satan all these years, the angels longing, First Peter says, to look into these things, will give that shout. There'll be a trumpet sound that everyone will hear. And uh, don't think brass, but maybe think ram's horn or shofar, that two-tone call of the trumpet that Israel would have heard in the book of Exodus when God entered the tabernacle. It's the sound of his presence. Or when Israel would have heard during the Feast of the Tabernacles, when Israel would invite the surrounding nations to come and sit at the table of Messiah, it's the sound of mission. Or when Israel would have heard when Joshua and the army walked around the Jericho wall seven times and had the loud shofar blast and the walls collapsed. You see what the trumpet means is God's presence is coming. His victory is certain, and it's the call to stay on mission. All of that will be heard. Revelation describes it this way, that when Jesus appears in the clouds, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all people on earth will mourn. You see, everyone will mourn. Everyone will, will uh, have a sense of how spectacular and cataclysmic and decisive this event, this event is. And see, that's the second word. Not only will it be unmistakable, much different than his first coming, it will be decisive. When it says that all the believers will be caught up to meet the clouds in the uh, to meet the Lord in the clouds, that will be the first time in history that the entire people of God have been present in one time and in one place. That will be so amazing. I believe we'll recognize our loved ones and we'll recognize other people and everyone will be together. And what a moment it will be when all of Israel and all of the church are together with the Lord in the air. But you know, it'll also be a moment when it's decisive for those who did not believe in Jesus who have rejected him, who did not respond to his creation or to his call. Um, it will also be a time when the destiny of every person in the world is known. So that's why at the very end, Paul writes, therefore encourage one another with these words. What does that mean? Two things. It means, first of all, be ready. Make up your mind, even today if you're hearing this, and you've never decided that you want to give your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, please do not wait to do that. Now is the time. Be ready for this event. It can happen at any moment. There's nothing standing in the way of Jesus' return. Another word that describes his return is imminent. It can happen at any moment. And so be ready. Uh, be, receive the Lord into your life and heart. And those of us that have, as we think about a new year, as we think about going on in this life, we have to be reminded how often it appeared in the New Testament. We have to think, discipline our mind that Jesus is coming back. And that has to influence the way we lead our families and serve them, the way we uh, carry out our friendships. It has to... It, encourage the way we work. It has to encourage the way we spend our money. Jesus is coming back 
at any moment. That has to change our behavior and keep us on mission. It has to result in holiness of character and purity of heart. Jesus is coming back. Be ready. I think the other thing it means in terms of encouragement, Paul says encourage one another. I think it also it reminds us that he gets the last word on our lives. Nothing here does. Nothing here is the end. Jesus is the end. Uh, as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of just a year ago, you, Waterstone, we, we hosted uh, some funerals of two young men in their 20s who died in a plane crash last November in New Mexico. One of them was a helicopter pilot in the Air National Guard here in Colorado. He flew uh, Apache helicopter. When the service ended, we all walked outside following his casket. And then it, the way it was planned is that I would say a prayer over the casket. And, and just before it was loaded into the hearse, there would be a flyover of four Apache helicopters. It was an amazing moment. As soon as I said amen, within 30 seconds, all of us standing there, hundreds of people could begin to hear the helicopters coming and they flew about 30 feet over our heads. The hair in our arms stood up and we wept together. It was an amazing event. After the service, I asked the funeral director, Kirk, I said, Kirk, how, how did you time this? How, military precision. I mean, almost as soon as we were done, the helicopters were on the way. He said, we had it all planned out, Larry, that as soon as you said a, a certain word, uh, what, my uh, helper radioed someone in uh, the military and they got word to the helicopters to fly over. And I said, Kirk, what was the word? And he said, the word was amen. And as soon as that last word is said, as soon as amen is said, the amazing event happened. The same is true for us. Jesus is coming back. Everything is circling on the horizon. All of God's plans are being put in place. But when that last word, the amen happens, Jesus is coming back. So may Waterstone live with that anticipation, tilted in faithfulness and holiness and committed to mission as Jesus is coming back. Amen.